from The Spectator, where each week we look at three of the pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. And I'm Gus Carter, the online comment editor. In this week's issue, Nick Farrell interviews Italy's next likely leader, Georgia Maloney. I speak to him about whether she's the most dangerous woman in Europe. Plus, does the online safety bill promote an intrusive culture of self-censorship? Finally, as we head off on our summer holidays, why has hand luggage become such a hassle? First up, for the cover piece this week, Nicholas Farrell met Giorgio Maloney. He joins me now alongside Chiara Albanese, a political correspondent at Bloomberg. Nick, can you tell us who is Giorgio Maloney and what is she offering to Italian voters? Who is? That's a big question. She's 45. She's a, an unmarried mother of a five-year-old daughter. She was born in a working-class area of Rome. She has a strong Roman accent. She is possibly the Italian equivalent of a Cockney. So she's pretty, or perhaps an Essex girl. She's been uh, a professional politician for um, many years, from a very young age. But she didn't, she excelled at school, but did not have enough money to go to university because her mother was a single parent who had been abandoned by her father, well, uh, Georgia's father, when Georgia and her slightly older sister were babies. And uh, uh, to make ends meet, among other things, wrote Mills and Boone-style bodice rippers. Uh, Georgia (laughs) herself, uh, having not gone to university, did all sorts of jobs, such as market stallholder, nightclub barista, nanny, and babysitter. She decided to go into politics, she says, in, um, I think it was 92, 1992, when the mafia killed the two top anti-mafia judges, prosecuting judges in Sicily, which was effectively a declaration of war on the Italian state by the mafia. She was desperate to do something, she writes in her recent best-selling autobiography. And she joined the neo-fascist Movimento Sociale Italiano, Italian social movement, because it seemed to be untainted either by the perennial corruption and impotence of Italian politicians. Um, Having started as a post-fascist, she then became a neo-fascist, she then became what they call a post-fascist, and she now defines herself as a conservative. And can you tell us a little bit about her party, the Brothers of Italy? What's their kind of policy platform? What are they, what are they offering to Italians? They brand themselves as a conservative party. They are inspired, she says, or she is inspired especially, by uh, Sir Roger Scruton and J.R.R. Tolkien, two um, obviously mythical figures in of English conservatism. They propose to lower taxes. They talk about a flat tax. They haven't specified what that would be. On um, social issues, they are they oppose the woke gender hook, line and sinker. She did oppose uh, gay civil unions, which were made legal in Italy in 2016, but now accepts them. However, she opposes virulently gay adoption on the grounds that she thinks a child has a right to a mother and a father. 
On immigration, she takes a tough line, which isn't surprising, though, given that Italy, in the last sort of seven or eight years, has had something like 750,000 migrants arrive on its shores, many of them ferried across by charity boats. She talks about a naval blockade to stop them, a naval blockade of the Libyan coast where they come from 300 miles away from Sicily, which is described as an act of war by her opponents. But uh, on the other hand, I mean, uh, her opponents have actively supported the current policy, which is to equip and pay for the Libyan Coast Guard to do exactly that effectively off the Libyan coast, which is stop uh, stop departures if they can and take back migrants uh, that set put to sea. Obviously, the coast is enormous and to blockade such a coast, you'd need a huge armada, which obviously is um, impractical. <clears throat> Chiara, one of the things Nick talks about in the piece is her the fact that People call her a fascist, that her opponents say that she has a best and ambiguous relationship with fascism. Nick talks about post-fascism. Do you think that's a fair characterization? Look, this is extremely complicated for her because um, Meloni, she... So the factor that one needs to keep in mind is that she is a first. She would be a first prime minister of Italy. She would be a first very young prime minister. She has been the youngest minister in a, in a government in Italy. She is basically uh, doing it her own way. And her own way has changed since she started doing politics when she was extremely young. I think she knocked on the doors of her, the first party she joined, which was most definitely of fastest roots when she was just like before her teens. So, well, it's natural to mature, to change, to grow up. And growing up, she has realized that she needs a new way to communicate and also a new line to differentiate herself from her fascist roots. And this is crucial and is going to be crucial. And this is what she is working on in these weeks of campaign. She does not to present herself as a threat to Europe. She wants to bring her own ideas within the EU framework. And that means that if she will get to power, she will most likely basically uh, show uh, her right-wing views, mostly on domestic issues, on social rights, on migration, rather than, for example, on budget. And that's, that's crucial to understand. And the other challenge that she has is that it's not all about her. She has a big party that has grown very fast, very quickly, and it's hard to keep a lead on a, on a party that is growing quickly. But also, she has some allies that have different views. If you think, for example, about the League and Forza Italia, those are very complicated uh, coalition partners to have, right? So figuring out the balance of power within her own coalition will be also a big question mark for her. Nick, as Chiara says, one of her likely coalition partners is going to be the Lega, Matteo Salvini's party. Salvini was seen for for years as a as a potential leader of Italy. Now his star has has sort of waned. What kind of relationship does he have with Maloney? They have a an on off um, a hot cold relationship, <laughs> uh, rather like. <laughs> A married couple. They, they effectively, they agree on most things, but they're, they're, it's a question of egos a lot of the time. 
they, they've certainly fallen out on major issues, however, in the, in the recent past. I mean, uh, one of the key things they fell out on was in 2018 at the last general election when the populist uh, anti-establishment five-star movement got the most votes and the most seats but was unable to form a, a government on its own so had to look for allies even among, from amongst the enemy and that included Salvini's The League, Lega, uh, who decided to join his enemy, the Five Star, to form a government, which, of course, incensed Maloney, his ally, coalition ally, as it did also Berlusconi. And as a, a second thing they fell out on more recently was on the um, election of the president at the beginning of this year, where they disagreed over the candidates. And so they do disagree on, um, on many things. But at the moment, they, oh, well, they also disagree on um, Ukraine, Actually, it's an, a, a potential difficult issue for them, a divisive issue, because Salvini has been pro-Putin uh, for years, vociferously so. I mean, he's, there are photos of him wearing a Putin T-shirt in Red Square, for example. There are allegations of him taking Russian money. Uh, and um, at the beginning of this war, he was kind of he suddenly became from being somebody who wanted to arm every single Italian to shoot down criminals. He, he suddenly became a pacifist and tried to, um, to argue that we shouldn't be arming Ukraine, uh, which, of course, is very different to uh, Maloney's line. She is very pro-arming Ukraine, very pro-NATO, and very pro what they call, she's an Atlanticist, she's very pro-America as well. Nick, this is something I wanted to ask you really about her philosophy. You talked about her her ambiguous relationship with post-fascism. I think one of the other ambiguities in her philosophy seems to be, on the one hand, this kind of Scruton-esque, conservative, almost Toryish philosophy to do with family and the nation. And then on the other hand, this kind of Atlanticist, free market, low tax position. It's one of the big divides in conservatism in this country. Is that kind of recognised in Italy? Obviously, Italy has never really had a conservative party, actually. The closest they've come to it was the old Christian Democratic Party, but it was very, very strongly influenced by the Catholic Church and also by corporatist, continental corporatist views where the state uh, plays a, a big role in life, including economic life. So the idea of Italy having a Conservative Party is actually quite revolutionary, though it might not sound so to a British audience. And yes, as you say, there is this problem between, let's say, a Scruton-esque type conservatism where the state where the free market is fine as long as it does not destroy communities and countries and cultures. That would be Scruton's view, as far as I understand it, which, of course, contrasts starkly with a Thatcherite, let's say, free market, no-holds-barred view, inspired by people like Hayek and so on, and the Austrian school of economists. And yes, I mean, she would have the same issue, but... I suspect she's much closer to Scruton than she is to Thatcher. Well, Nick, as you mentioned there, there are forms of European conservatism that's far more comfortable with a interventionist state. Chiara, Marine Le Pen is one of those European conservatives. In a recent Guardian op-ed, Maloney was compared to Le Pen. Do you think that's a fair comparison? 
yes and no. I mean, uh, sometimes one makes a too quick comparison when you've got two right-wing female leaders, but they've got very different backgrounds and they've got very different views. And also, they've got different trajectories. What Meloni is really trying to do here is just to grow up, act up, and make her party a reasonable and a market-friendly and investors-friendly party that is accepted from other allies. And you can definitely see that in her stance, for example, on Ukraine and Russia. I mean, even if her party was the only opposition party in Mario Draghi's government, Meloni always backed sending weapons to uh, Ukraine. And the same applied to other issues, for example, the European Union recovery funds. Her party abstained from Mario Draghi's plan on how to spend that, that money. But in her first interviews after Draghi's government fell, she was very reassuring on the fact that this money needs to be spent well to boost growth, to favor energy transition. So in all honesty, I think she is just trying to position herself in a different way from what Le Pen has been doing in France. And again, I think Meloni biggest issue, but I'm also very curious to hear what Nick has to is thinking about that. But I think her biggest puzzle to figure out is how to make sure she is the real leader, not only of her party, but of a very complicated coalition. Nick mentioned egos, and that's very true. Uh, let's not forget there is also Silvio Berlusconi there. I mean, he is not given up an inch. So uh, he's 85, is, uh, he had like for sure a, a tumultuous uh, political career and life, uh, but he is still the leader of the party. And if we look back, Berlusconi and Meloni also have a complicated relationship in which they've been very close. Berlusconi was the one to appoint her minister of giving her a big a big shot in in political career, but also they have disagreed on several matters and I mean, the reason why Meloni founded her own party has just been a disagreement with Berlusconi. So overall, I think the biggest challenge will be to figure out how to be a leader that is accepted outside Italy, but also not contested from her own allies. Nick, finally, given all of the challenges that she faces... I mean, not least with Italy and the and the bond market and, and the fact that Italy is heavily reliant on Russian energy. How long can you see this coalition lasting? How long do you think Maloney has? Well, it depends on how many votes they get for a start. But let me just, just quickly first just say one thing on Le Pen. Le Pen, she's different to Le Pen in the sense that Le Pen is much more fascist than she is on the economy. <laughs> she is much more pro-market, although with those scrutinesque uh, provisos of uh, looking after communities and countries and cultures, whereas Le Pen is for for massive state intervention and massive state welfare. Uh, Maloney opposes, for example, the government decision to to introduce the the dole for the first time in Italy, i.e. a guaranteed um, income for unemployed people, regardless of how many contributions they made. She opposes that. Although she is very keen on helping mothers and f- families with children financially, the state helping them, 
And on Europe, just quickly before I come to your question, Yola, on Europe, uh, she is actually in favour of a confederal Europe, not a federal Europe, a Europe des patries, not a European super state. So that, but nevertheless, she is very keen to appease Europe at the moment. How, how, how likely is this coalition to stick together? I think if it gets a, a good majority, and don't forget, uh, Italian uh, electoral reform means that the uh, that parliament has been slashed right down by something like a third, I think, if not more, a third, I think it is, of uh, parliamentarians, senators and deputies, fewer than last in the past. And so, uh, and because it has a hybrid electoral system of first-past-the-post, partly first-past-the-post and partly proportional representation, in the first-past-the-post seats, which are a third of the total, her coalition is, is polling massively, sort of above 50, way above 50%, and likely to win nearly all of them. So she, she's on course with the, her coalition to get a very big majority. That being the case, uh, they will be able to actually govern sort of rigidly and well and not have to keep making compromises because they don't have the, the seats in Parliament, the votes in Parliament. And so therefore, I think that, she, that this coalition, if it gets the right majority... It will last for a long time, actually. <laughs> if as, as long as, um, let's say, the international uh, mainstream uh, commentators and um, uh, thinkers and politicians uh, don't declare war on Italy. <laughs> thank you, Nick, and thank you, Chiara. Next, for this week's issue, Lord Sumption unpicks the online safety bill, and he joins me now, along with the former Culture Secretary, Baroness Nikki Morgan, who's in favour of the bill. Jonathan, you say in your piece in The Spectator this week that the online safety bill is designed to promote an opaque and intrusive culture of self-censorship. Could you start by explaining to listeners in, in layman's terms what you see the bill as meaning? The bill deals with different kinds of information in different ways. Its main target is pornographic images and illegal material. I've got no problem about controlling both of those. It controls uh, illegal material by requiring tech companies, in effect, to either moderate it or take it down. It controls pornography by requiring them to ensure that it's not accessible to children, which in practice means that there will have to be age verification procedures on the relevant websites. There is then a vast range of other material, which is referred to commonly as legal but harmful, which is also attempted to be controlled by the bill. And that's where the real problem, in my view, lies, because it seeks to control the categories of information which are incredibly loosely defined, which basically are undefinable, simply uh, by reference to whether they cause harm or not. And harm is just as undefinable as anything else. And it, it doesn't have to be harmful to everybody. It can be harmful to any group of people. So that you've got, you're trying to force internet tech companies to find on the vastness of the web uh, undefinable harm to undefinable groups of people. And that seems to me to be a recipe for regulatory overkill. 
Nikki, you are a supporter of the bill. Can I ask you to define what you see as the word harm meaning within the context of the bill? Well, I think harm is meant to mean obviously something that causes uh, psychological harm and it depends on the characteristics of the person. So obviously there is a I say a lower test in a way, uh, you're more likely to cause harm to somebody who is obviously very young or who is particularly uh, vulnerable. But I mean, obviously, I fundamentally disagree with the way that uh, Jonathan Sumption has just characterised the uh, the bill. So first off, he's absolutely right to say that there is illegal content that is to be tackled. I think when he says pornographic, what he actually means is child sexual abuse images, because pornographic material is handled in a slightly different way. But it is terrorism and child sexual abuse images are very clearly legal. I don't think anybody thinks that they shouldn't be regulated uh, and people made it very difficult to find that that content. There are, of course, very clear safeguards relating to uh, freedom of speech, democratic content, and that will be subject to further debate in Parliament, I hope, when the bill gets restarted. But I mean, clearly, as your question indicates, and as we've heard, the, the, the difficult issue is the legal but harmful. But I think very firmly that uh, there is content that, whilst not illegal, clearly causes enormous harm to members of society and there should be different rules depending on whether you're a a competent adult and able to cope with seeing such material or whether you are perhaps a younger more vulnerable person using a platform where you should not have to deal with self-harming images or pro-anorexia content or in the case of the inquiry that I'm chairing the House of Lords at the moment fraudulent content whereby people know knowingly advertise fraudulent opportunities in order to defraud people of their hard-earned income. What about political opinions that are considered to be harmful? Completely differently regulated and I think in fact not regulated really because I think what this bill and what people are the critics are missing is that actually what we're saying here two things One is there are already uh, rules on what broadcasters or magazines such as Spectator are able to uh, to write and to disseminate. And those same rules should apply to the online world. It shouldn't be left to Silicon Valley executives to decide what uh, what is what is necessarily uh, out there. And Ofcom are very experienced in terms, particularly in relation to broadcasting. But the other thing is that in relation to uh, the bill, what we're trying, they're trying to do is put a framework in place whereby you have sort of safety by design. So when the companies say, the platforms say, this is how we moderate content, this is when we decide to take something down or leave it up or whatever, actually what Ofcom are going to do is to say, right, well, you write that down, you risk assess it. And then we actually see whether, in fact, you do stick to those rules or not. Ofcom will not be looking at individual pieces of content and making any kind of decision about whether that should or shouldn't. And absolutely, I think Ofcom and everybody else realise that people are going to be offended, whether online or offline. And that's a very important part of our democracy and needs to be preserved at all costs. Jonathan, I'll let you respond to that. Well, I don't accept a great deal of that. Uh, First of all... (laughs) There are things like sexual exploitation of children are already illegal and they are covered by the illegal material sections of the bill. I've got no problem about that. Secondly, there's pornography, pornographic images, which require in practice an age verification test for access. Uh, I've got no problem about that. Now, it seems to me that the result of the legal but harmful category is in fact to put internet companies in a very different position to publishers like The Spectator. 
a publisher like The Spectator, I don't suppose for a moment it would in practice do so, but a, a publisher of a print magazine would be perfectly entitled to write articles encouraging anorexic behaviour by young people. It would not be illegal. I agree that it might be described as harmful, certainly to some people. But what, what is being done is you have a bill which controls material on the internet when the same material would not be controlled by, for example, a print publisher or by somebody making a public speech or a statement on television. It differentiates between these. Now, the vice of this is very simple. These controls are backed by the prospect of criminal liability for a named person that each tech company has to name and identify, and they are backed by fines of up to 10% of global turnover, so billions and billions of pounds. Now, any tech company faced with an obligation to find, and you can't control anything unless you find it, to find any information that may be harmful to any group of people when you can't define either the group or the nature of the information, is going to end up by taking the line which is most cautious. So the simplest thing to do is, uh, if in doubt, cut it out. And the, the problem that we've seen examples of this in plenty of places. Now, that seems to me to be extremely difficult to justify. If we want to make it illegal to have, for example, material anywhere that encourages anorexia in children, okay, then do it if you can get it th through Parliament. But if it's perfectly legal, the whole idea of having uh, controls on legal material uh, and on what people can say about it seems to me to be a patronising abuse of legislative power. Nikki, last week we saw Salman Rushdie attacked for a book which he wrote which many in the Muslim community consider to be harmful. What would the bill mean for a book like his? Well, of course, one of the things at the moment is that the platforms have only recently accepted that they are actually publishers of content uh, and not just providing a service whereby other people are, are publishing material. So I suspect that actually the obligations would be the same as they were on Salman Rushdie's original publishers, which is that actually they would take a decision that although this book was going to perhaps cause controversy, actually it was important that it was out there and therefore they were set out very clearly. I suspect there'd be a limited number of platforms that would want to have that, uh, that particular content, like any content. I mean, platforms, different platforms know their different audiences. Uh, but actually what the bill would mean would be that a platform would have a very clear set of terms and conditions of what they publish, why they publish it, I suppose, how they publish it, who it's, uh, it's aimed at, and how they perhaps, if again, if it was something which, uh, I think the Sam Rushdie book is not a good example of this, but if it was something where they knew that particularly vulnerable people, particularly younger people might be accessing content, how they made sure that actually they don't get to see that, uh, that content and how they handle complaints about it. So I don't accept that the bill would in any way uh, stop these things being being published. And I also think that many of the companies are already beginning to think, actually, how do we... I mean, they are already removing content uh, without any explanation of their terms and conditions in doing so. They already have algorithms that promote particularly harmful content, again, without any explanation. And what this bill is really saying is, just tell us how you're making these decisions. It's not saying, actually, uh, this is a sort of uh, content other than very clearly your content which you talked about. Everything else which is legal is explained and uh, people are accountable 
And just to say that actually in relation to the senior manager liability, I mean, I actually personally think we should go like the financial services industry and have senior manager responsibility, but that's not in the bill at the moment. The senior manager liability in respect of if a company does not comply with the um, powers of investigation that are given to Ofcom in the bill. But, but Lord Sumpter is right, obviously, about the, the fines that could be levied. Um, but there's a huge process to go through before fines are, are, are levied in that way. Lord Sumption, you talk about automated monitoring technology, which is essentially algorithms. I mean, are they could they be trusted to keep an eye on on what is our definition of harmful? The problem is that they are very unrefined techniques. Algorithms work through a mechanism which detects trigger text or trigger images. They have absolutely no grasp of nuance they are incapable of recognizing irony and distinguishing it from ordinary statements. They are incapable uh, of distinguishing between serious debate in a serious forum and just plain mischief making. Algorithms catch a huge amount in addition to what they're intended to catch. You only have to look at the way that parental controls work at the moment. Now, I'm not objecting to parental controls, But every parent who uses them will recognize that if you switch on parental controls, your children will be deprived not only of things that they should be deprived of, but a very large number of other things as well. And what you are left with is a pretty anodyne collection of material accessible to them. This is the way that algorithms work. They are indiscriminate. And Nikki, we're obviously in the middle of the Tory leadership contest and the online safety bill has been raised a few times. I mean, what what, what are Rishi and Liz's positions on it? Well, I think that they are... Um, it's interesting, actually, when both of them were asked about it, when I saw an article uh, about it a few weeks ago, both have got teenage... Or, or I think Liz's daughters are teenagers and Rishi's are a little bit younger. Both of them talked about the bill in the context of content that they either were happy for their children to access or or not happy... I think that they have uh, outlined some concerns about the way that legal but harmful is is drafted. And I'm not surprised in the sense that I think that those are very much areas that are likely to come up, both in the commons. But the reason I want the bill to get restarted is because I think it's going to receive particularly detailed scrutiny in the House of Lords, given the expertise of their lordships. And that is an area where actually the bill should be uh, scrutinised and and other areas uh, too. But I I just say to both candidates that as the Culture Secretary helped to draft the relevant section of the 2019 manifesto that we were all standing on, or or they were standing on, I suppose I'd left Parliament by by that stage, you know, we said that we were going to introduce a bill to make Britain the safest place in the world to be online. So yes, let's have a debate about particular sections of the bill, but let's get the bill restarted. Because actually, I think at the moment, we are saying it's acceptable for Silicon Valley executives to make decisions about what should and shouldn't be on the internet. And I think those sorts of decisions should now be made by democratically elected parliaments. And just finally, Jonathan, David Davis has, has said that this bill would be the biggest accidental curtailment of free speech in modern history. Do you think he's right to say that? I think he's right to say that about parts of it, but not about all of it. Which parts of it is he right to say that about? I'm concerned about the legal but harmful bits. And I entirely take uh, Nikki's point about the importance of debate and the importance of scrutiny in the later stages of the passage of the bill. But I have tried to explain my reasons why I hope that the result of that process will be exacting and will result in dropping those parts of the bill that depend on trying to define the indefinable. Thank you, Jonathan and Nikki. 
Finally, what's behind the spiralling cost of hand luggage this summer? To get to the bottom of it, I'm joined by frequent flyer and marketing guru, Rory Sutherland. Rory, in this week's magazine, we have a piece by the Daily Mail's travel editor, Mark Palmer, about hand luggage. In it, he says, hand luggage has become a bit of a nightmare this year. Can you explain why that is? This problem actually has been building, I think, for some time, which is that, quite simply, not totally foolishly, low-cost airlines introduced the practice uh, in Europe. I think in the United States, American Airlines introduced the practice of charging for hand luggage. Now, if it were purely an individual decision, maybe it wouldn't matter. The problem is it imposes costs on everybody else, because over time, Every single family has adopted this clamshell, maximum size carry-on suitcase. In the early days, if you think about it, when charging for hand luggage was introduced, the typical family had kind of an Adidas bag for carry-on luggage, and they had a ruddy great suitcase to check in. What this has done is basically promulgated this carry-on clamshell, maximum size suitcase, which means that boarding becomes an absolute shit fight (laughs) in the sense that now airlines can actually charge extra for priority boarding because people know that if you pay for the priority boarding you're much more likely to get your suitcase in the overhead locker it's also caused problems i think not only with delays in boarding but also delays in 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 customs in, in security because the whole business of carrying liquids Now, less pertinent for a man, but for women, that also includes cosmetics as well as obvious things like toothpaste, shaving foam, etc. More and more people are also trying to basically smuggle liquids through in their carry-on luggage to avoid checking anything in. So I think it's created knock-on effects which weren't always anticipated at the time uh, it was introduced. I mean, one of the one of the great nightmares, I think, is the fact that all these different carriers have all these all these different rules. Do you think that's something that they're actually doing deliberately? Yeah. So Ryanair now is starting to actually charge for carry on luggage above one minimal piece. So it's then created further confusion, which is people turn up at the airport and unless they've done extensive research, they're not quite sure what the rules are. That can create further delays and complication. There's a problem, however, in that once you've introduced this system, it's very, very difficult to remove it. Let me explain, okay? The reasons for charging for carry-on luggage in the United States, part of it is a tax break for the airlines. It's tax arbitrage. And that's because they're taxed 7.5% on what's called the ticket price component of the flight. But the luggage surcharge is not actually taxed. So there's a tax break for airlines in effectively creating ancillary fees in the US. In European countries, I imagine it works slightly differently each time. I'm not quite sure how the system works. But the problem you have in Europe is that if people are booking flights using, let's say, well, Skyscanner or one of the many, many kind of aggregators and price comparison websites, there's a huge gain to being cheapest because you appear right at the top of their listings. So any airline which now started reversing the trend and saying, no, we're going to include checked in luggage in our fare, will have fares which are correspondingly quite a bit higher, which will then mean they appear on page two or three, so their flights leave half empty. So it's partly a choice architecture problem. 
Rory, I'm a I'm a total skinflint when it comes to traveling. I like to throw kind of five different or kind of three or four different shirts in a in a rucksack and that's about it. And I quite like doing that because I like the idea that I could be in a foreign country and I could basically just grab my rucksack and go. I, I mean, what kind of traveller are you? Are you someone that enjoys a, a, a kind of a very large suitcase or are you a light traveller? Um, I've had I've had many years of business travel, which has spoiled me to some extent. <laughs> uh, in that, what you know, once you've turned left, turning right becomes that little bit more difficult. <laughs> um, the only problem you could argue is that, of course, charging for luggage actually discounts for business travellers who are going for a you know a one day or two day trip at the expense of leisure travellers who actually are going for longer. But there was this sort of logic, which is, okay, people are very price sensitive about a weekend break. They're less price sensitive if they're flying somewhere for two weeks, simply because the proportion of the cost of the overall trip uh, is much more made up of airfares in the case of a kind of weekend break than it is in the case of a two week holiday, which has car hire, two weeks of villa hire, and all those other expenses. So, I mean, uh, it's not entirely satisfactory. The problem is it's a bit like a drug uh, that for all these reasons I've given, once you've introduced it, it's very difficult to remove it. Rory, I, I've, I've always thought that carriers should actually sell bags that fit the dimensions, the kind of maximum dimensions of what they allow before they start charging. And one of the benefits would be, apart from the money they would get from that, is that all the different carriers have different rules. And so if you took your EasyJet luggage onto Jet 2 and they didn't let you on, it would cause you a nightmare and you would think, I'm going to book EasyJet next time. It just, you know, you would basically get roped into booking EasyJet every time. You're absolutely right. You'd have to make sure that the design of the bags was sufficiently varied so that collection of the bags from the carousel didn't turn into a fist fight. There are a couple of things I would like to see airlines do, which I think could be shrewd marketing. One of which is do not charge per bag, but effectively say it's £16 for one bag or £18 for up to four per booking. So that a family would then go in for a penny, in for a pound, right, we'll pay the extra two quid and we'll check in all our bags and we won't have this hideous problem of worrying about when we board, okay? So I, I think charging per bag crudely without having some sort of discount for bulk is a fundamental mistake. The second thing you could do is very simply say it's £16 for one bag, but if you pay £20, you get two uh, check bags free, free per EasyJet flight for the next 12 months. So you could do a kind of Amazon Prime arrangement where having paid once, you'd pay one annual fee, as it were, and then actually subsequent usage became cheaper. Because it's worth noting that people who fly five times a year are going to be more price sensitive about this than people who only fly once, perhaps. But I, mean, I, I think it is a case where it is a kind of crack cocaine of airline pricing. It is worth noting that the profit margins on airlines, uh, if you average out the flights, are incredibly low. So that if you the next time you fly Jet 2 or you fly EasyJet, broadly speaking, if you buy a cup of coffee and a sandwich on board, 
uh, you're more or less doubling the profit they make from you on that leg of the journey. These businesses, it's a bit like the, the raging about gas company profits. These companies look hugely profitable, but the reason their profits are so huge is largely because they're enormous companies, not because the margin's particularly high. I mean, in fact, if you buy a pair of designer sunglasses at Heathrow before your next flight, it's fairly likely that the sunglass manufacturer is going to make more money out of you than the airline does. Rory, the thing that's triggered this discussion is is the kind of nightmare of travel, the fact that, you know, we've all started travelling again and people are finding it a lot harder. Is there a carrier that you find most trustworthy? A tip for our listeners? Southwestern in the United States and JetBlue, which may be another of these airlines which hold out, are an interesting model of low-cost carrier in that they're not just money off, they're a little bit of value on. Um, the other thing to do is actually be careful when choosing your airline and your flight. Be careful that you don't become absolutely fixated on price alone. So it's very, very easy if you're on an airline website. For example, you can quite often, for instance, fly British Airways from Gatwick for not much more than EasyJet from Luton. You may decide that's a premium worth paying. It's up to you. I'm much closer to Gatwick. One of the mistakes I've made myself is I get absolutely fixated on booking the lowest price ticket. And I end up booking a flight out of Gatwick at 6.30 in the morning. And then a day before I fly, as a result, I save £40, okay? Then the day before I fly, I suddenly realise there's no way I'm going to get the children out of bed at 3.30 in the morning. And I end up booking a Gatwick hotel <coughs> to stay out the night before, which costs 120 yeah. So it's very, very easy to become laser-focused on the lowest-cost flight. And actually scrolling down the selection to find flights at a better time of day, flights on a slightly better airline. Um, generally, uh, you know, generally there is a sort of heuristic that the flag carrier airline tends to be a bit better and is worth paying some sort of premium for. That's by no means universally true. There are a few airlines, Air Portugal, I've always had a very good experience with. You might want to try American Airlines occasionally, but generally speaking, I mean, Generally speaking, before you make the decision, do see what the British Airways and the Jet 2 price is and give yourself a little bit of time to think maybe that premium is actually worth paying in this instance. So my tip for listeners just before we go is that the Heathrow Express now has competition in the form of the Elizabeth line, which is much cheaper and only takes a little bit longer. So definitely use that. Thanks so much for joining us, Rory. And that's everything this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, do pick up a copy of this week's magazine to read everything we've discussed. I'm Laura Prendergast. And I'm Gus Carter. And we do hope you'll join us again next week. A Spectator subscription is now better value than ever before. As a new subscriber joining today you'll pay just £1 a week for unlimited online and app access in your first year. To subscribe today, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash unlimited.